Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind on, not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the gift of your word and the chance to gather under it. Pray that you'd give us understanding, that you'd help us to hear you well so that we might know you better and make you better known in this world. We ask it in the name of Jesus, your word made flesh. Amen. So as Aaron mentioned, uh, we're we're getting back in the swing of things. It's September, and as I said last week in the weekly updates uh, this week, in honor of the new school year, um, we're going to be spending the next season, really between now and Advent, I can't believe if Aaron's right that there's only 11 weeks or whatever till Advent, Uh, But in the Gospel of Matthew, the lectionary texts from Matthew, with uh, a focus on what the saints in every generation have called formation, and which I'm calling the basics. (laughs) We're going back to basics from now until Advent. And we're doing that partly because when it comes to uh, the Christian life, a life of following in the way of Jesus, we never really get much beyond the basics. I mean, consider the elite athlete who never stops uh, doing basic training. Uh, Great artists never stop refining their skills. The world's most skilled craftspeople uh, never transcend their material and their tools. And just in a similar way, pursuing God's kingdom, we always come back to the heart of things again and again. And so... We're, we're also thinking about the basics because I think it takes seriously uh, what Matthew is doing in his gospel. Now, of course, on the one hand, he's telling us the stories of Jesus. And there, as one thinker has said, there, um, uh, there, there's a history-like quality to the gospels. A history-like quality. But if you read the other gospels, which tell basically the same story, you can pretty see, quickly see that the goal is not history as we kind of think about it, as an objective laying out of the facts and information. 
Each of the gospel tells the same story a little bit differently, which I think is kind of discouraging if you're looking for the gospels to lay out the facts in a nice, orderly, and objective way. You know, skeptics uh, often point out the differences between the gospels uh, as evidence that it's all very suspect and, and possibly all made up. But, but I think that's a category error. Right? Because the gospel writers, including Matthew, are not nearly as interested in providing us with information as they are inviting us into formation. They don't just want to tell us about Jesus, they want to invite us to be like Jesus. And Matthew's not laying out the facts with cool objectivity because life with Jesus can't be done with cool objectivity. The only way to understand Jesus, the only way to know what Christian faith is all about is to get in on it get in on what God is doing, to get up and follow, as Jesus says. Followers of Jesus don't watch from the sidelines reporting the facts of the game. Right? We're called into the thick of things, heart, soul, mind, and strength with everything we've got. We don't have to settle just for information about how things are or information about God, but we get to get in on formation in the way of God here and now. And when it comes to the way of God, I think we're always going back to the basics. And today's passage from Matthew is about as, as basic as you can get. Jesus says it pretty plainly. If anyone wants to be my follower, let them pay, deny themselves, pick up my, their crosses, and follow me. That's Discipleship 101. <laughs> I, I pay attention to a lot of different kinds of churches on social media. Uh, and because we're in this kind of transitional time of year, uh, those accounts tend to be sort of on overload, right? They're trying to attract anybody who might want to come and, and uh, join what they're doing. And, you know, I haven't seen a single post uh, inviting people to deny themselves, <laughs> take up their crosses, and follow Jesus to his cross. It's not a criticism, it's just the facts. You know, it's just not good for branding, right? To deny yourself and take up your cross is a hard sell. Every seeker-sensitive church in the world knows that the first thing you got to do is get rid of all, or most, if not all, of the crosses. Right? Jesus is just a little bit out of touch with market research here. Which is exactly Matthew's point. And I think it's, it's Peter's point as well. Right? In the passage just before this, Peter himself made the profound and profoundly true declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is God's way in the world, the one who's come to redeem God's people, to set things right, and to lead us into the way of life. And Jesus is quick to affirm that that is exactly who he is. And not only that, he tells Peter that flesh and blood didn't teach you this, but, but it's divinely inspired. God revealed it to Peter. You've got to imagine that the disciples are feeling pretty good about themselves. Feeling pretty good about this moment, right? They're there for the announcement that changes the world. And not only that, they're in the Messiah's entourage. They are on the inside. Peter, the fisherman from Galilee, is the right-hand man of the world's Messiah. <laughs> right? How about that? It's not bad for a kid from the sticks who probably didn't finish high school. It's easy, and so it's, it's easy to understand why he's a little upset that from that time on, Jesus began to teach and show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, and be killed. Right? Like you can hear the record scratch. <laughs> what? What? And, and I think we're supposed to feel that dissonance. Like this is a breakneck turn from what we might expect. And the difference between Matthew, the gospel writer, and, and Peter, 
is that where Peter wants to do some course correction on Jesus' uh, uh, mission strategy, Matthew wants to invite us into the shock and the surprise and, and ultimately, I think, the wonder of Jesus' weird way in this world. But the way that ignores the market research for something altogether new. Wildly more than Peter or the pollsters or we could ever ask or imagine. And I think what's important from the get-go is the, this wonderful, wonderfully unsettling fact that this is not an add-on to Jesus' ministry. Right? This is essential to who he is. He must go to Jerusalem and face everything that that's going to bring. And there are different ways to, to understand the cross, what it means to say that Jesus died for us or died for the world, and why that matters. And I track with lots of them, not all of them, but lots of them. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about that stuff, if you want, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. <laughs> but the trouble is that ideas about why Jesus is crucified or what it means that Jesus is crucified tend to get stuck at the level of information. Right? We, we want to know the logistics of the thing. We want the divine mechanics. We want good systematic theology. And it's not that there's, any, there, there's no value in that. Of course there is. But it's just not enough. And I think we can tell that it's not enough because the one thing Jesus doesn't do when Peter pipes up is start to explain himself. He doesn't show Peter a picture with you know, humanity on one side of a chasm and God on the other side and the cross making a bridge between it. He doesn't give a history lesson on the, the uh, sacrificial system of Israel. He doesn't even bother to quote the prophets who point out that this is kind of the way that God has always been promising to save God's people. Right? That this would have been a great opportunity to settle some of the issues that the church has been fighting about for about 2,000 years. <laughs> and instead, Jesus says, essentially, if you want to know what heaven is about, if you want to understand how God is in and for this world, pay attention and then do what I do. That's the pattern of Christian life. Be with Jesus, be like Jesus, do what Jesus does. It's no more complicated than that. And I think we see like, three things from the beginning that are foundational and formative as we let Jesus call us into the way of abundant life for which we're made as we become more and more like him. And the first is that Jesus willingly identifies with the suffering. Right? There is no roundabout way for, uh, to do what God wants to do in this world except for him to face the agony and the rejection, the pain and the death that await him. And that may not seem like good news, I admit. Especially compared to other ways of doing things. I mean, think about how different this is from the influencers and power mongers who would make the world in their image. Consider what we generally think of as strong leadership. Now, this isn't in any of the leadership books I've ever read. <laughs> Listen to the kind of political rhetoric that we're usually subjected to. I mean, it's hard to imagine somebody winning an election by promising to, to identify with the suffering. And that's not going to do anything for the GDP or the stock market. It's not going to elevate our status on the world, world stage. And I, I think that generally, when we're, we're doing all right, like, this is actually kind of abrasive. Right? When it seems like we've got things more or less in control, it's hard to imagine willfully identifying ourselves with suffering, let alone willfully taking it on ourselves. It's hard to hear Jesus' invitation to deny ourselves. Because the world that most of us occupy most of the time works really, really hard 
to convince us never to do that. I mean, improve yourself, focus on yourself, love yourself, express yourself. Don't ever, whatever you do, deny yourself. It's hard to imagine that this is good news. That is until we suffer. Right? Gosh, this is good news when things go sideways. When we are heartbroken and wretched. When our plans turn to ash. When we are faced with our profound limitations. When death shows up in all of its hopeless forms. Suddenly this is very good news. Whatever else it means. The, the cross means that Jesus is with us and for us. Not only in our best, but even in our suffering. At our worst. He's not going to uh, be with us only when things are going well, but when they're decidedly not. He'll refuse to leave us when the valley of death threatens to overtake us. Right? That we can trust the promise of the psalm that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Jesus won't only choose to be with us and for us when we've got it all together, but he will be with us even when we seem to be coming apart at the seams. And there is something about, something about knowing that love, that level of commitment to us, that faithfulness to the world, that love of the things that God loves that is transformative. Like it changes everything if we think about it. If, if that's how God is, then it radically reorders the world. When we come to the foot of the cross, we come to that place of our deepest needs, our deepest loss, our most profound pain. And there we find the one who, having loved us, loves us to the end and then through it. Jesus must do this because it's the heart of God. It's a place of healing. The cross tells us the lengths to which God will go to be with us and to be for us. It tells us that Jesus is not ever asking us to do anything that he won't do himself. And in context, I think it tells us something profound about the way that we're meant to live and move and have our being in the world. When Jesus calls us to take up our crosses and follow him, I don't think he's looking for a bunch of people with a reckless death wish. I mean, sure, there's a kind of death, but it's a death to the way things are. Death to the stuff that is killing us and our neighbors and our planet. Death to the things that keep us pinned down and bound in guilt and shame and anger and bitterness and greed and guile. Death to the familiar ways and means of the world that make the headlines. You see, see, the cross was a means of death and torture that was particularly reserved for people who disrupted the status quo. It was used for rebels and dissidents as a form of humiliation. Right? It was used to cause suffering as a terrible, painful way to die. And worse, you were left up there hanging naked for everyone to watch you in the midst of your suffering. It was, it was a deterrent to anyone who wanted to, to cause trouble, to mess with the peace of Rome. And I have to imagine it was like a pretty effective one. <laughs> and so while death is always a possibility for followers of Jesus in plenty of places in the world, uh, that is a reality, a very real threat. I think Jesus' call here is kind of to a reckless disregard for the way things are. It's an invitation to know that we're not only made for how things are, but that we're made for the way that God will be, or that the world will be when God gets the world God wants. A world that teems with love and justice and righteousness, a world of flourishing and healing, 
a world of reconciliation and joy, a world where every belly is filled and every tear is wiped away, a world of beauty and everlasting hope, a resurrection world. When Jesus tells Peter that he's got his eye on the wrong prize, this is what he's reorienting, reorient him and us too. Jesus' lordship is not about getting the right people in positions of power under the current order of things. Jesus' lordship is about leading a divine rebellion, a heavenly conspiracy, a holy band of mischief makers (laughs) in the ways that give shape and vision and texture to the hope that is ours. Now, the difference between Peter's vision and Jesus' vision is that Peter sees death and uh, suffering and, sorry, Peter sees suffering and crucifixion and a grave. (laughs) Jesus sees love and a throne and an empty tomb, which is actually what he said, right? He must suffer, be killed, and on the third day, be raised again. Jesus' call to pick up our crosses is never an end in itself. It is an invitation to see past what we think is the end and into a new possibility. It's a refusal to be satisfied with gaining the whole world, fruitlessly trying to, anyways, at the expense of our souls and to trust that we are made for more. We're made for hope and peace and joy and love in a world that too often feels hopeless and violent and cramped and lonely. We don't have to settle for the promise that the one who dies with the most toys wins because we get to live in the light of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, unlike Peter, uh, at, at this point in the story, we are living in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, which changes everything. It means his way really is God's way. And we see what happens when his followers are ready to live his way and nothing left, even if it means walking through a grave to get there. We see what happens for Peter and the rest after everything that Jesus says has to take place does. This is Acts 2, verses 41 to 47. Peter has just preached the first sermon of the church. And then the scriptures say this. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And about 3,000 persons were added. People were hungry. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. That's what we do every week. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as had any need. Other translations say, and so there were no poor among them. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a thing for the church? And day by day, it says, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Not who were saved, a one-time thing, but who were being saved, who were being with, becoming like, and doing the things that Jesus does. Golly, doesn't that sound like a riot? (laughs) I mean, it's scary in a way. Radical generosity, expansive welcome. 3,000 people sounds like a good idea. (laughs) You're going to end up with people you don't want in that group. Lives that seem more devoted to worship than anything else. I mean, if you don't find it a little bit unnerving, you should go back and read it again. 
And yet, it's unnerving, but it pulses with promise. It gives us a glimpse of what happens when our focus is on the other side of the grave, the other side of what seems inevitable, and into the hope of God's kingdom coming. As Matthew tells this story of this interaction with Peter, as he works to form us in the way of Jesus, there's a question in it all, isn't there? Right? Like, what is our focus in, in our own lives, in our life together? Are we willing to give up everything if it means getting abundantly far more in return? Can we trust that promise? Or should we hedge our bets? Remain bound by the way things are, because frankly, for us, it's not that bad. Do we want the world, or do we want life? And if we're going to take Jesus seriously, what will we do? What practices will we take on? What will we give up? What holy risks are we willing to take? Right? Jesus' call is to a radical intentionality. Nobody is putting a cross on us. The call is to pick up your cross on your own. No one gets to live resurrection life for us. We get to do that for ourselves. And if we believe any of it, then it should start to shape our lives. The kingdom of heaven should start to infiltrate our, our work, flourish in our homes, be found among our neighbors, consume our calendars. And the philosopher Albert Borgman says that our fundamental uh, commitments can't be lived haphazardly. We're not going to become disciples by accident. We might be surprised by it. <laughs> Others might be shocked by it. Because Jesus' call is always a bit of a surprise. Who would have picked Peter? Who would pick me? But the promise is that we get to choose every day that way that leads to abundant life. We don't have to settle for anything less. But maybe so.